This morning, as we come in our study of Joshua to chapter 2, we encounter the unlikely story of a woman named Rahab. If there ever was a sinner, she was it. She was a pagan. She was a prostitute. She was a Canaanite. She was a person under the judgment of God, but yet a person whose life was gloriously transformed by God's grace. As we shall see in the weeks to follow, Rahab was saved the same way we are saved, by grace through faith. And she is a person who remarkably becomes a significant part of the family of God. This Sunday is the first Sunday in the Lenten season. And so what I want to do for these next four Sundays is set forth that Bible's central message of sin and grace and illustrate it through the remarkable story of this woman, Rahab. So where do we start? We start with the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We start from the fact that all of us by nature are rebels against God. We start from the fact that all of us are lost, we're in the darkness, we need salvation, we need rescue, we need deliverance. We start from the fact that we need a Savior. The Bible makes that crystal clear for each one of us. The Bible everywhere paints a very stark picture of the human condition. Genesis chapter 6, the Lord says the thoughts of the human heart are only evil continually, God's words. Jeremiah chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, who can know it? Isaiah chapter 64, all of our righteousnesses, plural, all of the best we have to offer God is in God's sight only as filthy rags. Ephesians chapter 2, all of us are utterly dead in our trespasses and sins. Just a few verses, those passages could be multiplied many times over in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so those passages describe us lost and dead in sin and in a predicament that we cannot extricate ourselves from. But not only that, but we stand totally condemned before a holy God. And that's not just at some future day. John the Evangelist, in his Gospel, chapter 3, says the one who does not believe is condemned already. You don't wait till the final day of judgment. God's wrath hangs over you at this very moment. John chapter 3. And at the very end, Revelation chapter 20, that great white throne judgment is described. And John says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. And so when you put all of these texts together, numerous texts, many more than I have time to quote this morning, when you think about the human condition, the human condition is characterized by what theologians like to call total depravity. And what does that mean? That means that we are sinners from A to Z, if I can use that figure of speech. Uh, Or to use the words from Isaiah chapter 1. Listen to these words near the very beginning of Isaiah's prophecy. 
He says the whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. Sin affects every part of us. It affects us body, mind, spirit, emotions, the will. Sin affects every part of it. Now, total depravity, when you hear that word, you can, you can misunderstand what it means. It doesn't necessarily mean that each of us lives out the evil that is in our heart in blatant and even criminal ways. Most of us don't do that. But total depravity means each part of the human person is deeply marked by sin. And so not every person is equally corrupt in the outward observable sense of the word, but all of us are equally corrupt on the inside. All of us are dead in sin. Now, with that brief summary of theology in mind, we come to Rahab. She is a person who illustrates the theology that I just described. She is a person who was utterly sinful and she was under the judgment of God. We meet her in uh, the first verse of Joshua 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. There's Rahab. We discover that Rahab is a person who has nothing going for her, spiritually speaking. In fact, if I can put it this way, she has three strikes against her. Strike number one, she was a Gentile. And that put her at a huge disadvantage. Paul makes that point uh, several times in the book of Romans. For example, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, then what advantage has the Jew? I mean, we're all sinners. But what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Notice his answer, much in every way. The Jews had many tremendous advantages. And then Paul says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Only the Jews had the Bible. No other civilization, no other people on earth had the Holy Scripture. The Jews were privileged being entrusted with the very word of God. That set them apart from every other Gentile people group on the planet. Then you go to Romans chapter 9. Paul expands it even further. Speaking about Jewish people, he says they are Israelites. And notice this list of things. And to them belong the following. What? Belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Rahab had no part in any of that as a Gentile. All these great advantages were not hers. In fact, as Jesus talks to a Gentile woman in the Gospels, the woman at the well, he reminds her in John chapter 4 and verse 22, Remember, salvation is from the Jews. All right? So Rahab is not Jewish. She doesn't have promises, covenant, patriarchs, glory, law, worship, none of that. She is alien to all of it. She is at a huge disadvantage. The second thing, the second strike against her is obviously in our text, 
she's a prostitute. That means her sin is obvious. Her sin is open. Her sin is blatant. Everybody knows what's going on. She is an open, obvious sinner, strike two. Strike number three, she was an Amorite. We know that because in Joshua chapter 10, uh, as Joshua describes the territory that the Amorites controlled, there were seven nations in the land of promise. The Amorites were one of them. When you see what the boundaries were, the Amorites controlled the area around Jericho, which, of course, is where Rahab lived. And so there are seven people groups in the land, seven Canaanite nations under the judgment of God. One of them was the Amorites, and the Amorites of the seven were particularly singled out for judgment. All of them were, but especially the Amorites. And we get this back in the book of Genesis, chapter 15, during the time of Abraham. God comes to Abraham, or Abram as he was called before God changed his name. And he gave to Abram great promises. He said to him, you're going to have a son. Abraham had been waiting a long time for that. You're going to have a son, and I am promising to you this land. This is the land of promise that I'm giving to you and to your descendants forever. And as God made his covenant, you can read about the covenant ceremony in uh, Genesis chapter 15. As God made his covenant with Abraham, this powerful verse... Genesis 15 and verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And so Abraham received the promises that God gave. But God said to him, now, when it comes to the land, I'm not giving you the land right now. And I'm not giving it to your immediate descendants either. It's going to be a long time before any of your descendants ever possess the land. And here's why. Notice Genesis 15, starting at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Okay, we know from this passage, from history, he's talking about the land of Egypt. Remember, they went down to Egypt because there was famine. They ended up being enslaved. They were there in bondage for some 400 years. It's a long time to be away from the land of promise. But, verse 14, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Okay, the ten plagues of Egypt. And afterward they shall come out, your descendants, you know, like 400 years down the line, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here, come back to this promised land in the fourth generation. Why the delay? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. To use uh, this analogy, God's judgment like water building up behind a dam. And in the case of the Amorites, in Abraham's day, it wasn't time yet for God to bring his judgment on them. The scripture makes that clear. And the answer is, the reason for that is, to use the words of Scripture, their iniquity is not yet complete. So here's what happens. So the Amorites, evil, idolatrous in so many ways, they continued in those evil ways year after year, decade after decade, century after century, and every year that went by, the waters behind the dam got a little higher. 
the pressure on the dam got a little bit greater. And when the time was right, when the water pressure, if you will, behind the dam was so massive and it reached the top of the dam, all of a sudden the dam gives way and the Amorites swept away in one sudden judgment of God. Completely swept away in irreversible judgment. Amorites are particularly singled out in Genesis for judgment. Rahab was an Amorite. Three strikes against her. And so, Gentile, open sinner, and an Amorite. So her spiritual circumstances, you think about that. Her spiritual circumstances, dire, hopeless. Um, she and all of her people are facing the just and long-delayed wrath of God. It's ready to break. And she's to be swept away, seemingly, with all the rest of them. Now, before I go on, let me lift this passage out of ancient history from thousands of years ago and make sure that you understand that you and I are by nature in exactly the same condition as Rahab. Make no mistake about it. And I want to direct your attention to Romans chapter 3, which in the scriptures is probably the strongest indictment, the fiercest indictment of the human race anywhere in the pages of scripture. And I want you to notice what Paul writes. So he's talked about the Jews have advantages. We, we looked at some of those passages. But then he asked this question, what then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then you notice there's a whole series of Old Testament quotations, starting in verse 10. As it is written, and here begins the series of quotations, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Paul isn't talking about somebody else in these verses. He's talking about each one of you. He's talking about me. And, and I want you to notice what is our condition by birth and by nature. Notice his indictment. Notice how bad off every person is apart from the saving mercies of Jesus Christ. Notice the first pronouncement in verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. Now, that doesn't mean we as human beings are less righteous than God. God's perfectly righteous. We're not quite there. You know, we're, we're not perfect. We all make mistakes. That's not the idea here in this passage. What Paul means is that from God's viewpoint... No human being has the slightest speck of righteousness whatsoever. You see, what we, what we assume is our righteousness is pretty much on the same scale as God. So if you want to think of it this way, here's the scale of righteousness, 0 to 100. God is perfect. God is at 100. And we as human beings are somewhere, we think, 
between zero and 100. You know, most people are down in single digits, we might say. But then Billy Graham, well, where would he be on the scale? He wouldn't be at zero, would he? Or what about Mother Teresa? You know, they, they got to be somewhere up the scale. No, what does the scripture say? Human righteousness is not even of the same kind. We're not even on the same scale as the righteousness that God requires. I, I like this illustration. It came across it uh, some years ago uh, from James Montgomery Boyce, uh, who a number of years ago was pastor at uh, the great 10th Presbyterian in, uh, in Philadelphia. And this is the, the illustration that he uses, and, and I've, I've been struck by it uh, in years past. He says, so suppose during the Vietnam War that uh, a group of American soldiers are captured by the North Vietnamese. And uh, so they are imprisoned, of course, taken to a prisoner of war camp. Um, and so there they are languishing in that prisoner of war camp until one day uh, some care packages from the Red Cross arrive. And uh, in one of those packages, lo and behold, there is a Monopoly game. And uh, the donor who sent it thought, well, these prisoners are languishing, nothing to do in kind of desperate circumstances, something to take their mind off their circumstances, something to while away the time in their long hours of captivity. And the soldiers are glad to get the Monopoly game, not because they want to play Monopoly, none of them really do, but because it gave them money with which to do camp business. And so, before, if they'd wanted to get something from other soldiers, you had to beg it. Maybe you tried to borrow it, maybe you stole it. But now you can buy it with money, with Monopoly money. And so the soldiers took all the money out of the box, and they divided it equally among themselves. All the gold, yellow, blue, green, pink, white bills. You know how that looks like in a Monopoly game. Now they're in business. So as time goes on, some of the soldiers are better businessmen than others. And they begin to accumulate more monopoly money than the others do. And one is particularly good. He's a great capitalist. He knows how to buy low and sell high. And so he makes a profit. Uh, others still have a little bit of monopoly money, but he's got the lion's share of it all. Well, one day they are released from captivity in a prisoner exchange. And uh, before long, all of these soldiers are back in the United States. And so almost immediately, our successful capitalist in the story uh, goes to his local bank and asks to open an account. And uh, the teller is pleased to help, and she says, you know, we here at First National Bank are always glad to help our veterans. And so she says to him, how much do you want to deposit? Oh, about half a million dollars, he said. And he takes out... $500,382 worth of Monopoly money and puts it on the counter and shoves it through the teller's window. She doesn't say, oh, good, this is marvelous. Do you want, you know, certificates of deposit? Do you want CDs? Do you want an interest-bearing account? What do you want to do with all this? No, she quietly calls security to take this deranged man out of the bank. That fanciful story illustrates the difference between human righteousness and real righteousness. Oh, we call it the same thing. We have money in our wallets. We call them dollars. You take out a Monopoly game, there are dollars. I mean, they're dollars, aren't they? We have human righteousness and they're God's righteousness, and it's like real dollars to Monopoly money. It's not on the same scale. Nothing is the same. So we look at other people and we say, I'm a better person than he is. I'm more upstanding. 
Um, I'm uh, helpful in my community. Look at all the monopoly money I have to my account, we say. And plus, guess what? I have Boardwalk and Park Place, and I got a hotel on each one, and I managed to get all four railroads too. What does the scripture say? There is none righteous, no, not one. Yes, you have a human righteousness, and it may be a whole stack of monopoly money worth. But in reality, you have nothing that's real. It's all worthless cardboard title deeds and cheap printed paper money from a monopoly game. That is human righteousness. All of us, by nature, are totally bankrupt. On the scale, we're all at absolute zero. Only God is 100. Nobody's above zero. That's the teaching of the Apostle Paul. That's the teaching of Scripture. So that's the first pronouncement. Notice the second one. No one understands spiritual things. No one. Verse 11. 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the message of the cross is utter foolishness to every lost person. It doesn't make sense to any lost person, period. Now, you can understand Christianity from an intellectual standpoint. I mean, even an atheist can figure out the basics of the Christian faith, that's for sure. But no one understands, it doesn't make sense to you. You don't receive it. You don't internalize it. I understand it, but it's crazy talk. I want nothing to do with it. And so Romans chapter 1 says we suppress the truth and our foolish hearts are darkened. No one understands. Notice the third one. This talks about the human will. Sometimes we think we have free will to do whatever we want to do. What is this pronouncement? The will is so corrupt, Paul says, it is so bound by sin that it cannot and it will not seek God. No one seeks for God. That is a categorical statement. Oh, we seek religion, yes. We seek spirituality, we seek a God of our own imagining, but no one in his or her lost condition ever seeks the God of the Bible, period. Notice the fourth pronouncement. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah 53. We have turned everyone to his own way. And then you notice the rest of the passage. I'm not going to go phrase by phrase through the rest of Romans 3. But the point that Paul makes is when we turn from God, which we do by nature, when we reject him, when we're blinded by our sin, when we're hardened against him, we harm everybody around us at the same time. Notice what he talks about. He talks about the words that we use. Their throat, their tongue, their lips, their mouth. Notice all of those words. Their feet are swift to go in the wrong direction. There is ruin and misery. We don't know the way of peace. We wreck relationships. We harm other people every which way. And so here is Paul's devastating indictment of the human race. And it hardly seems that there's anything worse to be said, but there is. You notice verse 19. The whole world held accountable to God. We will be judged for our sin. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3. We are by nature the children of wrath, Paul says. So all of us are sinners, as sinful as Rahab. All of us are under the severe judgment of God, as Rahab was. In fact, now look at Joshua chapter 6. So here's what the Lord says. The people are across the Jordan River. Jericho is in front of them. Verse 17, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. All right, it's all going to be swept away. And then you see what happened down in verse 20. 
So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Everybody is swept away in judgment, oh, but except for one, as we shall see. The most unlikely of all people, and her family, Rahab. But you notice what, what Joshua says here. We bristle at that, don't we? The, the wrath of God upsets us. But if the Bible is, if, if, if God is how he is described uh, in the pages of the Bible, if he is indeed a holy God, if there is burning holiness that marks him, if he is characterized by utter purity, if he is a God of perfect justice and truth and righteousness, if sin really is as offensive as the Bible describes it to be, whether it's inward or outward, then the wrath of God is just and right. And what is God's wrath? It's not him flashing up in anger at a moment. It is his settled opposition, eternal opposition to all that is evil. And so this morning is the bad news. Because you have to deal with the bad news first before you get to the good news, which we shall in these next three weeks. But there is hope. I want to say this in closing. There is hope. And why is that? How is that? It's because God in his grace steps into our circumstances. God in his grace comes and he gives the gift of life and faith and salvation and hope and forgiveness. He grabs hold of us in his mercy and will not let us go. All things are changed. And so when God calls through his Holy Spirit and through his word, and when one responds to that call and turns from sin and believes the promises of the gospel, and embraces the forgiveness that is freely offered, what happens? Paul sums it up in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, that one is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That happens for Rahab as we shall see. Her life was incredibly transformed by God's mercy and grace, which she received by so this morning, the question is, are you a new creation in Christ Jesus? If the Holy Spirit is calling you this morning, speaking to you, the call to you is to turn from sin, as Rahab did, to trust in the promises, as Rahab did, to trust in the sacrifice offered for you, as Rahab did, and to receive that forgiveness and that life which... God offers to unworthy sinners like each one of us in this room. And the glorious thing is when you come to the Savior, when you receive what he offers to you by his grace, what is the promise? The one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. That's good news. We can rest in that. That when we are faithless, God is faithful. When we are wavering, he is strong. When we stray, he comes looking for us. That's the God of incredible grace. If what the Bible says is true about us, the fact that God in love would send his son for people like you and me, do you understand that? We're not just people with a few little faults. We're in pretty desperate shape. 
We're utterly sinners, but God loved us and sent his son. Does that grab hold of you? Does grace mean anything to you? Has it transformed your life? Or is it just a concept in church? I trust that God's grace reaching out to you, saving you. And some of you have some wonderful testimonies about what God has done in your life. You're going some direction and God just grabbed hold of you in his love and mercy and turned you around. That's what God does. That's what he's in the business of doing. And I know a number of you have testimonies of what God has done, how he's rescued you, saved you, given you new life, new direction. If you don't know what that's about, today's the day of salvation. Receive Christ for yourself. Let's pray together. Lord, um, as the scripture indicates, we have to hear the law before we hear the gospel. We have to hear the bad news and to make it as strong as possible so that we will, with great joy, embrace the good news and be, uh, be filled with gratitude and a life of praise uh, at, uh, at such amazing and great mercy. And so thank you, Lord, as we enter this Lenten season, as we think about our own need, uh, our own sinful condition, what you have done in our lives, where we've been in the past, where you've taken us to now, that's an amazing story of love and mercy. And we didn't deserve any of it. But out of your unexplainable grace and love and mercy, you reached out to us and rescued us. And Lord, may we truly, not just now, but of course into eternity, be forever grateful. So thank you, Lord, that we can rest today in the mercies that are offered to us uh, through that marvelous grace of you, our loving Lord. We pray these things for Jesus' sake.